I'll risk 25 basis points on anything. If I shout Welcome to the Must Follow podcast from StockTwits. I'm your host, Sean McLaughlin. You can follow me on StockTwits at ChicagoSean. StockTwits is the leading social network for investors and traders. You can download our app on iOS or Android or visit us on the web at StockTwits.com. At StockTwits, we believe you don't need to be a Wall Street insider to make money. We believe real investors working together can gain a discernible edge. The Must Follow podcast introduces you to interesting members of the StockTwits community who are honing their craft on a daily basis. Someone really a lot smarter than me said you have to begin with the end in mind. Like, what is it that you want your trading to do for you? How is it going to serve you? And if you don't have very clear answers about that, then, you know, take the time and make sure you get clear because the life you save may be your own. It's, it's very difficult to go out and build a track record and then say, oh, do over. It doesn't work that way. It's like credit history. It follows you everywhere. The Stockwitz community is extremely fortunate to have access to so many great and accomplished minds. Today's guest, Michael Martin, is one such individual. A futures trader for over 25 years, Michael's laser focus on mental and physical discipline keeps him in peak performance, to which many of his customers and investors can attest. Starting out as a wirehouse cold caller, Michael quickly gained loyal customers who trusted him to manage their positions for them getting customers both in and out of trades profitably. Forming a distaste for the asset-gathering commission-based pay ethos of the firm, Michael decided to strike out on his own with the backing of his loyal customers, where he now would be paid based on his ability to generate cold profits for them. And in spite of humble beginnings, nothing could have been a more perfect arrangement for this budding superstar. In our chat, we discuss where Michael Martin first gained an interest in futures markets, we recap his escape from the nightmarish cold calling world, and we explore a career trajectory changing mentorship with one of the industry's giants, Ed Secota, that started with a simple cold email. I hope you'll find this chat with Michael Martin enlightening. Let's get this out of the way right up front. Not many, and nobody knows this, but you had a very instrumental role in getting me involved in podcasting. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if you remember, but I think it was like two years ago, I had expressed some interest about podcasting. I think I tweeted about it or something. And, and you saw me chatting about it and you started answering questions for me. And then we ended up hopping on a call and and you walked me through the tools you use because you're a podcaster as well. And uh, you had, uh, I mean, you definitely gave me the final push I needed to, to get going. So I have you to thank for this. So thank you. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. It's, uh, it can be tricky because there's, you know, back in the day when I started podcasting, it was pretty challenging to figure out how to record someone's voice. And then, of course, you know, the post, you know, the post recording, you know, the aftermarket, that's where the money's made in podcasting is what can you do to affect the edit so that it's a good listener experience. And so that... You know, it's hard because there's really great technology out there, but the folks that make the technology oftentimes really scientifically speaking suck at getting the word out. So it's hard to figure out what tools to mix and match. Yeah, I definitely feel like I've uh, I've learned enough that I'm dangerous. 
Exactly. But uh, I mean, there's certainly a lot more I can do uh, with the editing and, and mixing the levels and things like that. But that's a discussion for another day. But I just wanted to get that up there up front, let people know that you were the guy that let me, that, that got, kind of got me into this world. So, uh, so thank you. And my parents would be proud. <laughs> well, Michael, um, the Stockwoods community may not be very all that familiar with you. I mean, you've been a trader for more than 25 years. You've been around the block. You've traded in all kinds of markets. You know all kinds of important people in our industry. But for many in the Stockwoods community, you might be a little bit of a, a, a fresh name that people uh, haven't uh, gotten to learn. So, so I'd like to spend some time you know, kind of going back through your history and how you got involved in trading and, and, and what you do and, and all that. But uh, before we do that, let's just start at the top. Let's start right now where, you know, you've been at this game for 25 years, but I don't think you would identify yourself today as just a trader. You've got so much more going on, don't you? Yeah, I get bored easy or easily. And for my style of trading, most risk is suboptimal. And so watching the day-to-day stuff is, I mean, I can't think of the time I had to get up and log in and look at real-time quotes in recent history. It's just not how I'm built. You know, I come from a working-class background, so I'm certainly not afraid of working hard, but I also need to work smartly. And so I spend, you know, if the old saying is the carpenter measures twice and cuts once, I measure eight times. And that's not because I'm anal. I can definitely gangbang like I have to, but at the point at at the end of the day, the way I look at trading is pretty simple. For example, I love to trade sugar. And I don't care what who you're talking to, system trader or not, swing trader, trend follower, people have their love affairs. Mine happens to be with sugar. And it's no doubt because I've done very well trading it, right? It's a natural thing. But That doesn't mean I'm only looking at sugar and it doesn't mean that I am going to, you know, find trades when there aren't any trades there. I look at sugar as a subsidiary or as an employee who happens to work for Michael Martin. And the benefit I get with sugar as well as all other commodity futures is is the leverage. So when I think about employing sugar, sugar has to work for me. And I want time and leverage to work for me as well in and around that sugar. It all kind of goes hand in hand. It makes no sense to me when you think of it as a subsidiary of Martin Incorporated that I would buy and sell that subsidiary every other day or a couple times a week. That's retarded as far as I'm concerned. Now, I'm sure people are going to have strong opinions about that, and that's great. That's what makes for a good horse race. But if I'm going to put money to risk at sugar, it's because I don't see like right now I'm looking at the march because I don't want to have to buy and sell it. I want to buy it and hold it like it's a position because that's the only way to really make a lot of money. I don't really care about the day-to-day stuff. For example, it's irrelevant for my temperament and my emotional constitution. So it sounds to me you're you're a classic trend follower, correct? Well, I'm a position trader and what I've learned to do through the guys who taught me was to how to sit and be patient and, you know, I guess it depends on how you define trends. Some folks look at it through a week. Sometimes it's a month. Some folks, it's a long time type of a deal. I think in today, sitting here right now, I would think of myself more like a Jim Rogers kind of a deal. And I'm looking to, you know, start a position with a small amount of risk. 
I would add to it in, in unlimited amount of times over the, the period, over the days, weeks, and months, as long as the movement is in my favor and my equity is continuing to grow. I'll also say that as a hell-bent for election style speculator, I do put my stops in the market. I don't have any, you know, uh, I don't use mental stops. And typically I know where there's a, there's a certain point in the chart where I know it could exert an enormous amount of pain for me emotionally and financially. And it's like a play date if you have kids. When the party's over, everyone has to go. Every play date has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And when it's over, it's over. And so I would say trend following is part of it in as much that, yeah, the guys that I studied with pr pretty much invented trend following. But they also were fundamental analysts at the heart, right? Ed Sakota and Mike, Martin, Mike Marcus were fundamental analysts. So that's an enormous part of their upbringing and who they are and their character and how they perceive risk. Right. Well, you mentioned some names there that are very important uh, in the trader community, and I definitely want to get into your relationship with those guys. Um, but before we do, let's just kind of finish where you're at right now. In addition to trading, you uh, also run a, um, uh, I guess it would be a trader mentorship uh, service or, or educational service. Is my couching that properly? Yeah. I mean, it, it's many things to many people. So I'm not really, you know, my business card, I don't have a title, right? Because I'm just Mike. <laughs> Every, and everyone should have a mic. That's <laughs> right. Like, I'm the official Mike. Like I said, I'm, I started teaching when I was back at the wirehouse because folks couldn't pass the series seven part, mostly because options and muni bonds make up 40% of the exam. And it is kind of stupid. It's bass backwards in as much that if you want to work at a wirehouse, you have to pass the Series 7. One-fifth of the exam is on options. But if you go to a wirehouse, they will promise you that you'll have a better chance of seeing Jesus if you get on your knees and pray than you'll ever get trading options, um, <laughs> which is so stupid. But what happens is the regulatory environment is such that they want to condense all these exams. So you used to have a a muni securities representative exam, but now they merged that into the series seven 30 years ago. Same thing with like the, the options. If you wanted to be a government bond person, all those exams used to be separate. Then over the, over time for efficacy, they put the, all those aspects in one exam known as the series seven, but, uh, and so they needed a, a representative amount of questions. And so with munis and the MSRB who, who make, you know, the municipal securities rulemaking board, and the folks at options have requisited that, you know, we need to see this type of representation. It turns out to be about a fifth. The test itself is a waste of time because there's nothing on it that will help you make money. It's really for marketing and knowing how things are traded, taxed, and what the risk associated with them are. Uh, both on an IPO or a secondary market trading kind of a deal. Yeah, it seems to me those tests. It's like if, if you can pass those tests, all that really says is that. Yeah, you could speak the language. <laughs> it yeah, doesn't make you an expert in any way. No, and really, you know, the old rule of thumb in that was is that the the higher you score you got on the exam, the worse financial advisor you were going to be. <laughs> because ultimately, if you want to become a financial advisor, none of it comes down to managing money. Like the wirehouses or even the independent RIAs are so disinterested in what you think you know about managing risk. They want you to raise assets, and that's what your job is. Right. And I don't care who you work for, whether it's a private RIA who 
you know, I'm thinking of two guys, one of whom speaks at, at, at StockTwits, StockToberfest, to the smallest one-person operation, to the business managers in Los Angeles out here who handle money for the stars. You know, their, their business is to gather assets and market. That's it. Put the money in a wrap account, move on and raise more money. The whole asset management game is is ridiculous at this point uh, for the fees that people are getting. Very, very few of them actually earn their dead money fee. But anyway, people come to me for a few reasons. One is I'm in Los Angeles, so if they're having trouble trading the softs or something, they want to give me a call because I'm not at the local gin mill you know, gossiping. I'm not part of the social circles or the alumni associations because I'm dislocated. I'm in, like I said, I'm in LA. And they can talk to me with confidence and I don't want to say cry on my shoulder, but work out some things that would, you know, get them all, get them off their chest, help them process their feelings about what's working, what's not, what's not working for them. And, you know, typically you find out in nine times out of 10, it's an emotional problem, not a technical one. The technical part of trading you could teach to a sixth grader, but most folks, especially really, really smart folks, they don't like being wrong because they're not used to it. And so trading becomes very difficult for them because, you know, they've gone to uh, John Thomas Dye or Andover or Phillips Academy, and then they went to an Ivy League school or a Georgetown or an Amherst, and then they want to go to Wall Street, and the first day on the job, they get kicked right in the balls. And they're like, wait a minute, <laughs> this doesn't feel so good, you know? Yeah. I mean, some people are masochists, so you find out that people are running rackets and they're playing out emotional systems that they're not even aware of. And trading is usually a vehicle to get in touch with those feelings so that they can run their rackets. And it's an awfully expensive way to become in, you know, in, in touch with your own inner voice, so to speak. So then there is some, some coaching stuff where I figure, and I will promise to give back the mic, you know, on the learning how to trade stuff, you find, you know, when you and I were starting, I might be a little older than you, I would literally be sitting at the Barnes & Noble at 81st and Broadway long before the internet was even around, just sitting reading all the best books of the day, mostly because I couldn't afford some of the price tags. Now, eventually I bought them all and still have them. But you find out that because of how cheap it is and the, the economic barriers to join the internet, so to speak, or join a social media platform is terribly low. And so, you know how they used to say like opinions are like a-holes, everyone has one? Well, now it's like opinions are like Twitter accounts. Everyone <laughs> has them and unfortunately it's the a-holes that are running most of them. So <laughs> I just figure unless there's a value add on my part, I'm not gonna be involved. No one needs to have me quoting, you know, market wizards in the in the Twitter stream because, you know, I've lived it. You know, I'm, I'm those are my friends now. So if there is a how-to part, I try to separate the wheat from the shaft and say, what we will do, because all the information you'll ever need to know, I think is already available for free on the internet. But what, what you get with my guys and me is the wisdom and the insight that you can only get from, from trading itself and having to sleep with one foot on the floor. I would say that you are definitely, a, uh, you support the famous saying from uh, Richard Dennis back in the day where he used to say, that you could publish my one page of rules in the fr on the front page of the Wall Street Journal and still very few people would make money trading my system because it's not about the system. It's about the six inches between your ears and how you deal with the fluctuations in your trading. 
Yeah, and I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, uh, especially in today's day and age, uh, since you brought up Richard Dennis, who, mind you, went through like a 50% drawdown following his turtle, his own rules that he invented. You know, it's like that quote from Ecclesiastes, you know, you, one day, you know, you know, you're going to get your ticket punched and who knows when it's going to come. So you better enjoy the ride because it might end before you're ready to have it end emotionally. You know, we were shot by friendly fire in our workings and we had a big allocation from Refco and then Hurricane Phil Bennett hit who, you know, decided to defraud investors of about $460 million and that tanked the company. And there went our allocation, even though we were running money for people in India. What happens is, is it, you really have to conjugate what you know and what you're willing to do. And I say willing because willing willingness has a lot to do with trading. And you have to be willing to go out there and lose money in systematic ways. I don't care if you're a Peter Brandt kind of guy and you're a systematic or what people like to, I think people get confused when they start talking about discretion. You know, discretion really means shooting from the hip and going on a whim. But you can't tell me that what Peter Brandt does, for example, is discretionary, right? Because it's systematic, you know, chart reading, you know, same thing with, you know, um, Brian Shannon, for example. All, all their rules are very regimented. Just because it's not computerized in some kind of backtesting simulator doesn't mean that it's discretionary. Um, and so it's a very valid way to, in fact, I'll say this and it's a very, very bold statement. Forget what you read in Market Wizards because that book was read in 1989. And listen carefully, everybody in that book is not doing today what they did in that book. Even the guys who mentored me, it's a different world. And so they're not sitting in systems, hitting F9, getting a printout. They know exactly where their trades are because they're looking at the charts and they know what their levels are and they can put the trades on. They can calculate the risk in their head. The whole idea of simulation and running systems and I don't do anything outside my rules is bullshit. Maybe we should qualify that. Like, yes, they have a system and yes, they follow rules. However, that system and those rules are constantly changing. They change with the seasons. Right. And that's, and that's not a bad thing. That's a, that's a dealing with the new reality that you're faced with. <laughs> well, it's even more simple than that, Sean. Commodities are seasonal. It's built in. Mother Nature has it worked that way. You know, you, you don't get to decide how you want to do it. And every trading methodology has its day in the sun, right? The turtles had their moment in the 80s. And then since then, do the, work, do the rules work? Yeah, they work, but no one's going to give you money to trade that type of trend-following model anymore. They're not looking for 4% moves a day. They're not looking for 100% months. So if you're looking for fast money, just realize that there's two sides to the coin. There's the I'm euphoric because I've just doubled my money in, my month, my, my, in a month. And then the other flip side of that is destitution and despondency. Because you can't make 100% a month without inviting at least a 50% drawdown. And if that's how you're built, then go for it. But allocators today are looking for really low volatility on the capital because they're going to allocate to people. They're already allocating to a portfolio of managers and they want to see what your zig does to their already existing zag. Right. And if you bring in 100 basis points a day, you know, they're not interested in that. So you really have to figure out, someone really a lot smarter than me said, you have to begin with the end in mind. Like, what is it that you want your trading to do for you? How is it gonna serve you? And if you don't have very clear answers about that, then you know, take the time 
and 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 make sure you get clear because the life you save may be your own. It's it's very difficult to go out and build a track record and then say, oh, do over. It doesn't work that way. It's like credit history. It follows you everywhere. But that that's a hard truth right there for a lot of guys who've been around a long time. Let's go back, Michael, to um, you know to the beginning when you started trading. I mean, you've already mentioned several times. Um, uh, about the men, the people who have taught you, who have mentored you. So uh, I know at StockTwits, we're big on mentorship and, and, and people finding others to learn from and glean wisdom from. Uh, you know, that, that's maybe the, uh, the new modern way that mentorship is happening in some ways. Uh, but I think you might agree that, uh, you know, with trading floors going away, the pits going away, uh, there, there was a whole mentorship mechanism that is uh, really disappearing, if not already disappeared, from the way the trading industry works today. Uh, would you Would you agree with that or no? Yeah, I mean, I think it's regardless of whether I agree or not. I think what you say is absolutely true. The whole bring somebody in, you know, have them sit on a desk as a runner, and bring your hangers and coffee and diet cokes for a couple of years while you go to business school at night, and then you work your way up you know, to managing risk. It is a very, very different model. Yeah, that was a well-worn path for for generations down on the floors in New York and Chicago. Um, so what, let's talk about how you got started in, in the markets. Uh, were you fresh out of college? Uh, you know, where did, where did your interest begin? A lot of it was more emotional and philosophical. You know, I, I, I worked hard as a kid. I've been working since I'm 12, I used to cut grass and mow lawns and trim hedges and shovel driveways because I grew up in Putnam County, New York, where you had four seasons. And I don't know if I was just I had the discipline or not, but I was also the baby in the neighborhood. Everyone was two years older than me or more. And one of my best friends, in fact, was five years older than me. So the big difference between a 12 and a 17 year old kid. Right. That's so big difference. Yeah. Right. So I was everyone's little brother. But I also didn't take jack from anybody. And, you know, maybe because I was a hockey player or maybe just because, you know, I was always pretty much coming from a good place. I just hustled. And where my friends and my peers were lazy, I would get up on, on a snowfall and just walk up and down the street saying, hey, I'll shovel your driveway for five bucks, blah, blah, blah. So as I got older, I wasn't afraid to work hard, but I, I learned the hard way. Like, for example, I was I used to carry golf bags at Wingfoot in Quaker Ridge, and uh, the, which are in Westchester County, two pretty damn good golf courses. And, you know, the big days for golf are weekends. And the big days for taking your girlfriend to Jones Beach are the weekends. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so you find, you learn very quickly opportunity cost because there's a lot of push and pull. If you don't work, you don't make the money. You're also spending money going to the beach. So the whole thing is, you know, you miss a hundred bucks a day for Lupin, but you're also going to lose a hundred bucks in what you're going to spend. Plus, when you don't show up on the busiest days, the caddy master has a way of letting you know that he's not happy that you're not there to help him when he needs you most. So there's that. Then there's if you do work, your girlfriend reminds you how many other guys are out there that are very, very <laughs> interested in her services. <laughs> so. I always understood opportunity costs from a real inherent standpoint. When I got to school, um, it turns out that my school was the third largest landlord in all of Manhattan. So they were very much concerned with energy prices because all the 
students and faculty who lived in university-owned property, you know, it was utilities included. So if we had a, an extended winter, everyone was walking out with the heat on. So, you know, all that heating oil cost was had to get eaten by the school. Likewise, in the summer, if you had an extended summer into the fall, people would walk outside and leave their AC on because they weren't paying for it. And so th there was enormous basis risk. And so that's kind of how I learned the commodity space on the physical side, just by dumbass luck, being in the right place at the right time. Interesting. And then, so we were charged with coming up with a hedging model. So of course we looked at seasonality and you know we would go call down to the NYMEX and we'd get the ASCII prices and we'd put them into a Fox Pro database and run it through Lotus 1, 2, 3. And it was really unbelievably, <laughs> I mean, I could run models or macros and go down the street, have a smoke, you know, whatever it is that I was go for a beer, take a nap, come back, and the thing would still only be halfway done. So <laughs> it was it's come a long way in terms of how you can test the data. Sure. What university was this? Do you mind saying? No, I went to Columbia in New York City. Okay. Okay. And so you were in Columbia, living in the dorms, uh, exposed to this uh, this need that the, that the the university had to hedge its risks, whether they knew it or not. You saw an opportunity to say, "Hey, there's a way to you know reduce your costs in certain ways." So that kind of got you thinking about the commodity markets. Yeah, I would say, you know, for one, I, I, I didn't live I didn't live in a dorm. I lived off campus and that was great. I, I preferred to kind of distance myself just because I was always more independent thinking. I would never want to be like Woody Allen said, I would never want to join an organization that would have a guy like me as a member. I don't make for a good employee. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm too much driven on my own. And I'd rather fail on my own than succeed working for somebody else as an employee. It's just how I'm built. Sure, sure. What I understood when they – it was the senior vice president of the university who would make his report to the board of trustees. He kind of put it down through the channels that they needed to hedge. So I was actually charged with you know, looking at that data and pulling it together. What they eventually did with it, to be honest, I don't know. I don't know if they used it. I don't know if they tweaked it. I can't take any credit for any of that because it was beyond my pay grade. But I was in the right place at the right time. And I did say to myself, like, okay, I get how these folks need to buy as hedgers so that they can lock in their prices, you know, before the seasonality would kick in. But, you know, suppose you were a speculator, right? Because if it's a zero sum game or close to it, you could take these same rules and go down and, and trade the markets with them, you know, and that was kind of around then after that, you know, market wizards came out, which I think puts that at like 1989. And so then I was like, Hmm, if I put this all together, I can probably create some alpha as it's called. Okay. You just mentioned market wizards coming out in 1989. Did, did you come across that book before you, you yourself had become a trader and did that inspire you to become a trader? Oh, absolutely. That book, that's probably, and I've said this to Jack the first time we had a chance. You know, I basically said it then and I'll say it again now. I think that interview with Jack, there's a couple of them that are up on my YouTube channel. And I say to him in no uncertain terms before any, any uh, I think it was Hedge Fund Market Wizards we were talking. It was either that or Market Sense and Nonsense. It was those two books that I had interviewed him for on video. You know, and I said without... Jack, there's really no Mike Martin the way I exist today. A very important guy. 
in my life. And I can remember reading that book, the hardcover, mind you, you know, at that bookstore and just saying, these are regular guys who figured it out. Like they lost money. Everyone goes through that hazing period of thinking they know everything and then taking a punch in the face, getting back up, doing it again and figuring it out. And that's that to me isn't trading technical. That's your emotional constitution. Like how do you take a beat down? Do you get back up? Because I get back up. No one's ever going to beat me in anything. Eventually, I'm going to get back up. I'm going to find a way to win. And, you know, of course, it's a game that I want to be involved in. I'm not going to go picking fights with Ronda Rousey, you know, because <laughs> I'll get my head kicked in. But for the fights that I want to be in, if I, I know the feeling tone in my body of when I can do something, even if I don't know exactly how it's going to turn out, I know what that feels like in my body. And so then I take that as an entry point to go and do it. But yeah, Market Wizards and then basically all the books Jack wrote, uh, The Futures Game, Who Wins, Who Loses and Why by Tools and Jones. Um, I didn't care for, I know this is going to be blasphemy, but the whole thing about Jesse Livermore was lost on me. I thought he was a scumbag. So I couldn't want to read Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. I thought the book was okay, but I would never want to be friends with that guy. You know what I mean? This definitely puts you uh, in unique company. I think uh, most traders would say that's one of their favorite books. I think it's important so you can understand the emotional roller coaster, but I think you can get more from like market wizards and learning about Bruce Kovner, you know, tra trading soybean spreads and lifting up one of the legs so that, you know, he could let the, 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 the markets run, you know, so I guess it just depends on what your favorite flavor is in terms of, uh, you know, the historical constructs. I just, like I said, I think you can learn a lot from Livermore, but keep him at arm's length. I don't think it's a guy that you want to emulate as a human being. Yeah. I mean, he certainly had some booms and busts that uh, very few humans could really endure. And I don't even think he can endure as we all know how that story ends. Well, plus he was a philanderer, you know and I mean? I, I can't, I, you know, that's, I don't treat, treat people that way. I mean, if there's one thing people would know about me is they know exactly where they stand with me. They might hate me. They might hate the sound of my voice, but I'm straight with people. I manage their expectations. I let them, let them know exactly what they can expect from me and what they can't. And if I have a sense that they're looking for something extra, I ask them about it because, you know, whether you're in platonic or, rom or romantic relationships, with men or women, I don't care what your what your preference is, not you, but the folks listening, you have to be straight and very, very clear with people because that comes down to integrity and character. And so when I look at the folks who mentored and coached me, they all had really, really good character. Like I said, you can learn a lot from Jesse Livermore, but I would keep it at arm's length. <laughs> all right. So from your first discovery of Market Wizards and similar books that had huge inspiration to you. Take me to that point where you are now trading your first account. I mean, are you, you're not on your own, right? You, you were working at, at a shop somewhere. Am I right? Yeah, I got started at a wirehouse, which will, which will stay nameless. And it was the same old racket. Take your Series 7 and go learn how to market. And I was like, well, I don't, I do want to market, but I really want to make people money because I know how to do this. And they were like, well, that's just great, but <laughs> we, we, 
we're concerned with what quintile you're ranked in. And so it was all this macho bravado crap that doesn't really do anything for you as a person or as a group of people. Like they're very, the folks who bought into it were really simple. And, you know, I guess that's what kind of made them success is that they could have focus to get on the phone and cold call all day. And that was the game for them was closing. That wasn't the game for me. I didn't care about closing or whatever. I cared about net gains over, you know, over losses. You did not trade money for that firm, did you? No, I traded client accounts, folks that I knew, folks, folks when I was able to walk around and show them my model and how I could rely on this data because the seasonality was built in that as long as I would keep my risk tight, I could effectuate gains in their accounts. Now, were you being compensated uh, based on your P&L with these, uh, with these customers or you were just getting compensated based on commissions? At that point, it was all commissions. Right. So you were differentiating yourself as a guy. Like you, you weren't just a salesman selling these people a stock or a commodity or whatever. You were selling yourself as a service like, hey, I know what trades to make or I know how to manage your risk and things like that. And that, was your, that was your pitch. Yeah, my pitch was also, though, to a highly targeted group of people who I knew were either in the business of commodities, like they were producers or consumers of commodities, so they understood it, and they wanted me to deploy what I knew how to do in a speculating type of account, as opposed to hedging some of the folks I had hedging accounts with. But the commissionable aspect, I mean, back then, you're looking at $125 a round turn commission, okay, <laughs> which is nowadays, if you even said that or had it on your paperwork, you'd get shot. Right. So it is a long time ago. And, you know, I showed them the results. I had all the spreadsheets. I showed them the data. I didn't really care who could take it. But, you know, the firm, again, that I worked with, they had their own cookie cutter way of wanting us to do stuff. They said, get your Series 7, then get your Blue Sky 63. The Series 65 was like just coming into being necessary. So they wanted you to do that. Then they wanted you to go get your health and life insurance license. And then way down at the end, they said, get your Series 3. And so immediately I had this massive conflict in that. I am not going to do what you want me to do. And their their ethos was your job is to get in front of money that's in motion. And I said, no, it's not. My job is to create alpha. And so we had a big disconnect. You know, the things that I thought were going to happen when I started versus what they actually wanted me to do day after day were very different. I, I put that on me in that I should have known better. I can't blame the firm. I can't blame the color blue for, for being blue. Right. Right. Blue is just blue. And so they were just their firm. But I had no interest to talk to anybody about long term care, despite how <laughs> important it might be. You know, most people can't afford it. Other folks, you know, can't qualify, for example. And, you know, so you find out that one out of four people in the right age group are actually leads. It becomes very, very difficult to build a business on that. You know, again, that's a long time ago. Now it might be different. But I wanted to make people money. That was what I was clear about. I didn't know how I was going to do it. But I knew that, you know, if I wasn't going to be a guy who could trade risk in the markets, that I would be a 9-11 operator or I have, you know, I could be an emergency room surgeon. I could do that kind of stuff because I don't panic. It's just the way I'm built. It doesn't make me better. It's just how I'm built. I don't I don't spook easy. Okay. Easily. 
So it's clear that uh, you are not long for this job, this particular job. So what was the next step for you? How did you break away and where did you go next? <laughs> so, yeah, you're exactly right. It was three years and three months where I learned. I said, well, I'm going to stay here and work in this platform to learn as much as I possibly can. And most importantly, to meet as many people as I can. Now, I did try to stay at the firm and move to another department, but those folks were not, I mean, it's interesting to look back and see what, you know, how almost revered, I don't know if that's the right word, but folks held these folks up to like really high esteem. And looking back, I'm trying to figure out why. And I think because it's like, trading is like film producing. If you walk out and say you're a film producer, to the uninitiated, it sounds really, really sexy. But once you follow these people to the office at 10 o'clock and they start working their phone, they're cold calling, they're selling, they're groveling, they're dealing with people complaining all the time. Like it's a glorified consultative sales job. Mm -hmm. There's nothing really sexy about it. Only a handful of people actually get to make the art, right? And I know, because I'm in LA, I know who they are. And, and most of it's sales and negotiating. The rest of it is, you know, there's an old saying, a friend of mine, a friend of mine's dad was one of the five co-founders of CAA, uh, Creative Artists Agency. And he said, look, Hollywood doesn't make entertainment. Hollywood makes deals. And that's really what it comes down to. Trading is about managing risk. And if you weren't from in that point, you know, that trading desk was run by a group of people that they affectionately or unaffectionately called the Manhasset Mafia. And they were all going to St. Mary's and they'd all come in on the train and it was their little deal. And unless you were in with that group, it was very diff diff difficult to get in there. And so I had to carve my own stone. You know, I had to carve it out of stone and I figured, all right, let me break out my Lotus one, two, three, because this is still pre-Excel and calculate that if I took it to under, if I had the same amount of money that I was running then at the wirehouse for a commission basis, what could I make if I still did as good a job for people under a two and 20 scenario? And on a conservative basis, it was, you know, six times the gross commission, right? Which you're getting, you know, if you're lucky, you're getting half of that. Nowadays, you're probably getting mid 20s on your commissions and fees if you're working at a big wirehouse. Mm -hmm. So it was a material jump and I knew I could do it. It was a question of, cash flow and do I have enough dry powder to pay my bills while I'm trying to trade and make these folks money and you know so there were a couple of really dark times in that because you have to always do what's good for the client and you can't also force trades you know once you go on a on an incentive fee arrangement you realize that every time you force a trade because you need to make your incentive fees or at least what you projected as your incentive fees you find out that the market will come back and penalize you further. Further, So you learn a lot of good rules about being a fiduciary and learning how to treat people's money like a newborn child. I imagine during this time, I mean, you're starting out, like you mentioned, do you have enough money to pay your bills, things like that? I mean, take me back to- Many times I didn't, you know, and many times I didn't, just to be honest. Like, I'm not sitting here saying, oh, ho, 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 ho. yeah. <laughs> Everything was easy, and no, it was hard. No, it was take hard. me, take me back to that to some of those moments. Like, what did? How did you fight through those tough periods where you were wondering how the hell you were going to pay your rent that month? You know, I can feel those feelings as if they were yesterday. It's um, 
you know, you go for what Peter Boris and I used to call the, the park bench day, where, <laughs> where you're in Manhattan. Uh, I was living on the west side near the um, Museum of Natural History, and I'd walk into Central Park and I'd sit down on the bench and I'd say, what the frig am I doing with my life here? And it wasn't because I had a big hit drawdown or it wasn't because I made all these gains. I was just saying to myself, like this, there's something here that really works for me. Like, I don't have to say I'm sorry if I lose money because I don't get paid if I lose money. You see, most other arrangements are heads I win, tails you lose on Wall Street. But when you're working as a, you know, a CTA or a prop trader for somebody, you're only getting a piece of the kill. And, you know, I had good friends. I borrowed money when I had to. I, you know, I just did whatever I had to do to to make it work. And then when I did come into money, I would be very judicious. Like I wouldn't a lot of times if you read Thorstein Veblen in the theory of the leisure class, you know, that spending on, you know, these discretionary items goes up as your income goes up. Well, I didn't do that. You know, I didn't go out and rent a Ferrari. I didn't go out. I like to live in a nice place. That was my one creature comfort. But I didn't all of a sudden go out and buy, you know, custom made Berluti shoes for six grand. I didn't go out and do crazy, stupid stuff with my money. I realized that given how we're paid here, I need to have some ample capital to, you know, just have for spending to make sure that I have that peace of mind so that I can be emotionally balanced so that to know that I'm going to be okay. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to help my clients out, but I also have to love myself enough. And that's, you know, part of that is, you know, is, is storing and, you know, canning and jarring your foods for the winter season. So, so to speak. So I did a lot of that. As you've progressed through your trading careers, you're still finding your place in, in the trading world that you had the benefits of some great mentors. You mentioned uh, names like Ed Sakota um, and, and others. Uh, so can, walk us through how did you meet guys like this and how did you foster these relationships to be able to kind of stand at the feet of giants and to learn from them? I did something that I didn't think I would ever do, and that was leave my beloved island of Manhattan, right, which is, you know, my home. And I moved to Los Angeles. That would have been in like the spring of 1998. And going back to the previous answer, when you're saving capital to pay your bills when you don't have an incentive fee month, you're not traveling and doing things that other people would do because they have a paycheck and they can predict very, very accurately what their income's gonna be, you know, next year, maybe even the year after. When you're working for yourself and you're working on incentive fees, there's an enormous amount of variability, especially if you get paid quarterly on your incentive fees and you have a, a quarter where you're not making money, you're not getting paid for six months. So that's like semi-annual interest payment on a muni bond, right? So it's right. like, whoa, you paid twice a year. This is, what am I signing up for? So I moved to Los Angeles, you know, with my book of business, figuring I'm getting up at 5.30 anyway. If I do it on the West Coast, I can trade and I'll be done somewhere between 10 and 12 o'clock every day and I have the whole rest of the day to go and exercise and do all that. So when I got to LA, I was trading and, uh, you know, I, I took a while to get myself situated, still making money, trading mostly grains and softs. And, you know, I just figured, like, now that I'm here and I'm situated, I I might benefit from having, like, a men's group 
or a group of like-minded people. Now, this is an entertainment city. Uh, it's not a commodity city like Chicago or New York, for example. And so there are very, very few people in the money management space. Here is a, you know, this is a city where people go to business school at Anderson or Marshall at USC, or they get a law degree, and then the big job for them is to go work in the mailroom at William Morris Endeavor. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's retarded. You have to be stupid to do that. And so, you know, but to each their own. Again, if you want power and wear skinny Prada suits with ridiculous looking ties, then go <laughs> knock yourself out. I'd rather dress like a guy and, you know, <laughs> and make some money and not have yell and scream at me. Not to, not to, and I'm going to answer the question. When I listen to the stories about how the rageaholics are screaming at their assistants, I don't know how they don't go out to their car and take their brother's 33-ounce bat and smash these people across the head. No one's going to yell and scream at me. I don't care what job you're doing because you're going to eat my fist if it comes down to that. <laughs> Yelling and screaming at me like I'm your bitch. Can you imagine that? That just does – That's and this is why I make for a bad employee because – I have so much disdain for people who were there before me, and I learned that on Wall Street. Like the folks who were the the sales managers and stuff, they were these little guys with Napoleonic complexes trying to walk around the office and be tough because they did you know a hundred thousand in gross commission that month. And I'm like, wow, how banal is that? Like that's such a not a great indicator of who you are as a person or what you mean to the community. Like who gives a shit? Right. Like it's so irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. Anyway. <laughs> I couldn't find, surprisingly, a men's group in and around L.A. who, you know, were managing money for people or who could who could share similar stories of, of you know, self-awareness and what have you. And I just remember what an enormous impact reading at Sakota's chapter was in Market Wizards that, you know, I just looked them up and basically cold called them. I actually emailed them first and then I called them. And, you know, that was it. Wow. And at the time, Ed was living in uh, – was he in Lake Tahoe? Yep, North Shore, Incline Village. And uh, we emailed back and forth. Of course, his stuff was very Dr. Seuss-like, cryptic stuff. You know, <laughs> dear Ed, I'd like to study with you. And then, you know, dear Michael, thanks for your note. I wonder what it is you want to learn. And then I'm like, oh, we got to do this now. What the fuck? <laughs> and so he sends me back his phone number. And I'm sitting – all it is is his phone number in the email. And I'm sitting there saying, well, that's great. What the hell am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> you know, like, and then it hit me. It's like, oh, my God, I have to call this guy. Yeah, he, so, he's daring you to call him. Sort of. And so thank God I was wearing my Depends because my system flushed. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I vacated my system. That was a discretionary trade, mind you. And then of course. I called him and we chatted for like 90 minutes. We hit it off like we were old buddies. And he's like, why don't you – I'm putting together this damn men's group. I call it a trading tribe. And uh, you know, you can come check it out. My guess is you'll come once and never come again. And I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> and then so I came. I went. I met a bunch of great guys. There were like five or six of us in uh, – I don't want to call it the core group because that sounds not what it, how it was like. But there were people who kind of came and said, hey, I thought we were going to talk about trading. And we really didn't talk about trading at all. We talked about what it is that you go through when you're trading so that you don't sabotage your own deal and how you don't undermine your own efforts or at least you become much more self-aware 
in all of your actions to see how your actions see look at the end of the day it really comes down to attitude right your attitude affects your judgment your judgment affects your behavior and your behavior predicts where you end up in life and so you can trace all your activity back to the emotional payoff and we're human beings we're emotional beings you can't say well i'm a purely systematic guy and i don't feel stuff go listen to my interview with bill dunn who took one discretionary trade in about 45 years. His emotions are running through his body all day long. But what he has is the discipline not to override that. That's the big misconception with systems. Systems don't remove emotion from people at all. All it does is say, well, in the past, if you had run this model, this is how much you would have made. Here's the expected value of a trade. And if you wanted to follow these rules through last night's close, here are the orders that you could enter today. Enter self-doubt, enter questioning, enter whatever it is that you have in security because it will all come front and center. Because once you get that order, you've got to enter the order. And there's a big gap between the time your system simulates what the next order should be and the time you enter that trade. It's a lot easier said than done. Absolutely. I mean, in a lot of ways, you're uh, you're giving yourself up to the market. Once you've put that trade on and you're in a trade – uh, you, you've given yourself up to the market and you really have no control of, over the outcome outside of the parameters of, say, your stop or your, your profit target. You're powerless. And that's true in life. I mean, you're pretty much powerless over everything. And I think once you surrender, that's chapter two in my book is surrender. Once you surrender to the fact that you don't know a damn thing and all you can do is your best and all that all you can do is really claim and stake a claim towards your own sense of discipline, that's all you have at the end of the day. You can't steer anything. You can minimize your drawdowns by trading smaller, right? So when you think of drawdowns, it's systematic attrition of capital. And you can play poker with that as part of your track record because you can do like what Paul Tudor Jones did is he said, I never wanna have a, a down week of 5%. I never wanna have a double digit month. So once you're down 8%, and the second week of the month, you can stop trading. So you could lock in that 8%, you see? Right. I don't think you can really do that with your gains if you have open equity. I mean, if you have a big monster month and you wanna make sure that you're gonna get paid, you could certainly cauterize everything, but that goes against you know, fiduciary responsibility and, and my way of thinking, but you, I guess you can do it. I think it's easier to do with your losses or when you're running a drawdown, you can certainly tweak what you risk per trade and then what you want your cumulative losses to be on a week or a monthly basis before you stop trading for that period of time just to let the market shake out because it's clear at that moment in time that you know your methodology is incongruent with what's happening in the marketplace and so therefore entering time into the equation could give you time to cool off emotionally as well as let the markets evolve so that maybe they will evolve into an environment that is conducive to your trading gains given the rules that you follow. Sure. Well, now it, it sounds like Sakoda was uh, one of the first and perhaps most profound influences on you and your growth as a trader and and perhaps as a human because uh, I know he's, uh, he's, he's a lot deeper than just trading. Uh, are there any one or two lessons that you can specifically trace back to Ed Sakota that, that have stuck with you that, that really meant a lot to you? I think there probably is, but 
again, it's like I've been living it. A lot of it was, you know, the realization that, you know, I was meant to do this. It's, you know, when you're speaking about people whose names are, you know, held in very, very high esteem, and then you're sitting next to them, to their immediate right, every other week for two years, you all kind of become teammates. And I can remember, I can remember one thing somewhat vividly, and it might, if it helps people, then so be it. It might be kind of stupid and cheesy, but I can remember there was a point where we were stating our goals just as an exercise because we thought it would be empowering to say stuff out loud and be accountable to the group, but then also to manifest, you know, our activities. Remember what I said about attitude and judgment and behavior and all that kind of stuff. And so we would be able to see like, okay, well, if this is your stated goal intellectually, what are you doing emotionally to to have that all add up? Like, what, what are you doing, practically speaking, on the day-to-day? How does that serve you emotional, emotionally? And will that all add up to, you know, you achieving your goals? Because what we're concerned about is the variance, right? And a, a simple example would be, so you put, you're running a system and your job is to buy the 20-day high, simply stated, and that day comes and goes, but you don't enter the order. Why not? So there's a variance there. It's emotional variance. Or you're waiting for the 20-day high to hit, but you jump the gun and you buy the 15-day high. There's also a variance in your rules. So something has to change, you know, if you're going to follow that model. You know, do you reprogram the whole model to test those results? Or do you figure out emotionally what's going on, which is usually what the goal of the trading tribe was, is to figure out what your emotions are trying to tell you or what they're trying to teach you. And that was really the ethos of the whole trading tribe. We weren't sitting around talking about cocoa and the fact that there's no seasonal, you know, daily trading limits and that it takes seven years for a cocoa tree to actually yield anything worthwhile. So if the crop gets damaged, it's really going to hurt for a long time. We never really talked about that. You know, what's what's deliverable, the four different types of beans that are deliverable against the yellow two number contract in the board of trade. It's irrelevant. Like, who cares about that? Right. So I remember saying, and I'm going to ham hock the language, but if I remember it correctly, I, my, the, the stated goal at the time, and mind you, I was already registered as a CTA and I was a member of the NFA, but my stated goal was something along the lines of, I'm going to be a professional you know, trader or CTA, something along those lines. I am going to be a professional trader. And that went on for weeks, right? I mean, first of all, we're only meeting every other week on Thursday nights. And so I would fly up from L.A., land at Reno Tahoe, rent a car, drive up Mount Royce Highway, meet a bunch of buddies. We'd have lunch. We'd shoot some pool, take a nap, whatever. Then we'd have this meeting that would last from like 7 till midnight or later. Then we'd be completely emotionally hungover. We'd sleep. We'd get up and we'd go skiing the next day. And this went on and on and on and on and on. And it occurred to me, my own little stupid aha moment, was that you know, listen to the language that I was using. If my intentions were so clear, folks listening might have already picked up on it. And that is, the future doesn't exist. All we have right now is the ever-evolving moment of right now, and right now, and right now, and right now. So when I say I'm going to be a professional trader, like, what does that mean? Because the future doesn't exist. All we have is right now. So then it, it just is a paradigm shift in my brain that said, wait a minute, I am a professional trader. 
and forget the registrations. That doesn't make you a professional trader right. per se. It just makes you a junkie for doing paperwork and stupid shit that doesn't add up to any profits. But that's the regulatory environment we're in, although it didn't stop Russell Wasendorf from stealing. It didn't <laughs> didn't stop John Corzine from tanking man financial and putting a bunch of pool operators and CTAs out of business. It didn't stop Russell, uh, you know, Philip Ben at Revco and all the other weasels who had no business handling money. So anyway, the paradigm shift was I am a professional trader, not because I'm registered or a member of the NFA and have a DDoc and I got 10 figures of assets under management. I'm a professional trader right now because I'm doing the things that pro traders do. And that was a sense of ownership. And so then, you know, things really took off for me. We had some good years in 2004. I was ranked number one, at least by uh, a few places in terms of where I was submitting my data. I wasn't the biggest CTA by any, by any stretch of the imagination. But I did what my clients asked me to do. I made the money and I had very low drawdowns. And it was um, – I was kind of off to the races. I just owned it and said, you know, there's nothing else. There's no – no one's going to come here and anoint you and say, ah, you are – you're not a Jedi yet, young Skywalker. Like you, <laughs> once you do the stuff that they do, you kind of are. And that's what I had been doing. I had the discipline. I had been getting up. I don't – you know, I, I don't really drink a lot because I can't think straight. But I wouldn't do things during the week that would affect my not being able to get up the next day very, very early and do a good job you know, in managing risk. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's something that's uh, unique or somewhat unique to West Coast traders uh, in particular is that uh, it's tough for, for us to have a uh, active social life in the evenings like most normal nine to fivers because uh, our day starts so early in the morning. And if we're not, yeah. and if we're not tip top shape, uh, you know, it's going to affect our results and we're all about the results. Yeah. And, you know, I like a good Guinness says the just like the rest of them or a scotch or whatever, but I am such a lightweight, like I have a pint of Guinness, I can feel it the next morning. And it doesn't mean I'm hungover by any stretch of the imagination, but I, I think for those of you who drink, you know what that means. Like I can feel it the next day. I'm not necessarily even sluggish, but I know like the day before I had alcohol. And I don't like that feeling. And so it might sound ridiculous to some folks, but that's largely why I don't drink, is because I don't like how it feels the next day, even after I have one. Right. For the right. most part. Um, it's just how I'm built. Well, hey, man, I live uh, in Colorado, as you know, and uh, so you add uh, elevation to that mix. And uh, one beer uh, <laughs> one beer has a much more significant effect than here than one beer at sea level. I can tell you that. Yeah, I, I've been there and I know exactly what you're talking about. And so <laughs> when you think about the discipline that it takes, that's really what differentiates you from your peer group is who has the most discipline. That's the way I look at it. All right. Well, Michael, at the risk of jumping ahead, uh, you know, I think we've now kind of established you're at a point in your career where, you know, you consider yourself a pro trader. You are a trader. You're making your living in the markets. Um, the, the next thing I wanted to talk about, and these are topics that you discuss in the book that you've written, The Inner Voice of Trading. I, I want to talk about how you go about maintaining your levels. I know you're you're an, an have avid interest in yoga. Uh, I know that you have uh, some daily practices that you've put in place. I think you might also be interested in meditation. You can correct me if I'm wrong on that. Um, but I'd like to talk about what you do on a regular basis that that keeps you at the top of your game. I smoke a lot of pot. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, I no, I don't smoke pot either. I um, 
you know, I like to get up early and get at it. Not Jocko Willink early, 4.45, but early enough to, you know, get ahead of the get ahead of the game. I typically do a lot of work in the evening, and I think that's something Paul Jones stressed and that, you know, trading takes place, you know, between 5 and 10 at night so that, you know, I'm really prepared for the next day. Most of the time, that does not mean getting filled on orders, but that's the process, mostly because I have a wish list and I know what my levels are, and if they don't get to those levels, I'm not interested. And for my way of trading, I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything. I don't care about Amazon's big day yesterday. It's irrelevant to me. It's not why I do it. And so I have my orders. I call them. I'm still old school. I call them in, working you know, by myself a lot. It's nice to have another person parrot the orders back to me sure. so that I can find errors because errors cost money. And uh, they usually cost me money. So... Oh, I've uh, yeah, I'm with you on that, man. Errors never work out in my favor. Or I should say, very rarely. And if they do, it's only uh, <laughs> you know enough to maybe cover the commission cost. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was one time I got filled on a trade that was an error, and you know I made money. Uh, I think I was long a bunch of gold coming past first notice, and I couldn't unwind the position in time enough, which was stupid because I you know of course when you look back, you really have more time, more than enough time. Nonetheless. I didn't get filled on everything, and certainly the next day, I found that I was getting delivered against a bunch of bullion, none of which I wanted, of course. All right. So by the time I unwinded everything, I ended up making like 350 bucks net net, but it was a stupid place to be. I should have known better, and uh, it happened. And so then, what I try to do is, okay, if my ethos and my belief system is such that it's my discipline and my outlook and the paradigm that I live in that that gives me my edge over everybody else, then I have to nurture that. And that means I don't smoke tobacco or other types of 420 related approved substances. <laughs> I don't drink alcohol during the week, even though it would be all too easy to do. I don't stay up till two in the morning watching TV or I don't have TV, right? I'm a, I'm a cord cutter, so I have like some streaming things, but I'm mostly concerned with baseball and most baseball games are long over by the time I go to bed. And so during the week, I try to be my own support staff and just do the stuff that I need to do so that I can have great discipline. And that means eating well, having good rest, and then taking care of my brain. And that's it, you know, once you, once you schedule everything, it kind of becomes easy to do. Scheduling is important for you for all that stuff. Yeah, because you know, like, you're Chicago Sean in Colorado. I have a ton of friends who are still celebrating the Cubs World Series victory in Chicago <laughs> and the whole state of Illinois. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm from New York, so I have all my childhood friends and my college buddies and then my professional friends who I met early on in New York. And then I have a whole group of people still in Mumbai and in the UK. So the, you know, the ever flow of information of DMs and text messages and Slack pings and emails and otherwise never really stop. Sure. And so I kind of try to stay on top of that by keeping good hours and, you know, yeah, time blocking. Time blocking is really critical because there are there's times when you have to walk away from the desk anyway. Sure. Uh, OK, well, we've been chatting for an hour and I apologize. We are just now getting to this, but it's important that we get to this. You are uh, working with uh, another trader, Tony Saliba, an options trader. Uh, and he, he's written a book and you are helping him publish it. It's called Managing Expectations. I'd like to talk about this book a little bit if we can. Yeah, sure. It's, uh, 
it's a great book. It's big, big. It's like 450 pages. There's 200 charts. And, you know, like I said before, if you want to go look up stuff on like condors, there's a, only about a million pages on Google that, that you can go study and learn about condors if that's what you're in for. But what you get with the book here is 37 years of context and wisdom and what he had to learn and what he thinks is important. And I think that's what would differentiate it from like, oh, another book on options. So why don't you give listeners who aren't too familiar with Tony Saliba, maybe give us a little background on who he is and, uh, and, and why he's somebody we should be listening to. So, I mean, anyone who's been doing the same thing for 37 years has found a model that works. You know, they haven't suspended him or thrown him out of the business. He hasn't blown up. He hasn't taken leaps and bounds and got stupid with managing risk. He's also coached and mentored leagues of people in and around Chicago on, you know, everything from trading derivatives to risk management to risk management systems. Tony was coincidentally in the first Market Wizards book that Jack wrote, the same one that included Bruce and Michael and Ed and Jimmy Rogers and all that. I think Tony's was the last chapter. And I've known him for about 10 years, and we always were, were looking for the right way to work together and do something together in like around teaching or education and stuff. And so he said, you know, I haven't really done anything in the book space. I have a couple workbooks out there, but I haven't really gotten my ethos out there, you know, in one spot. And so I said, well, like I'll publish that book for you. So, you know, concurrent with Tony's writing this book is the launching, I guess, of my own publishing imprint. So this is the first of hopefully many which means, you know, if you're a competitor, you should probably sell your company because it's the top of the market. <laughs> Just kidding. There's a lot of room. There's room for everybody. And most of my competitors are good friends of mine. So I wish them the best. Anyway, just talking smack. Um, so Yeah, the book is great. And, uh, you know, I learned stuff. I just wanted to make sure that we we don't just do the same old thing that everyone else has done, because there are some you know, very intelligent people on options, but what makes this unique? And so we tried to stress, you know, the things that AJ did over his career that made him unique. How did he had to, how did he have to evolve with the markets, right? Because he's been around since before they were listed options, standardized options, right? right? Right. So guys like him and Victor Sperandio, you know, they traded options since the late 60s, early 70s, before they kind of really came into their own in like 73 or shortly thereafter. And they were doing like, like Victor, a lot of people don't know, was trading options, but they were over the counter. Everything was customized. And so they kind of evolved from that into this listed option space to, you know, really own it. So he's he's been around since forever, basically, as far as options are concerned. He is options trading. So we have his inside on everything from first and second order Greeks to Vanavarma charm and, you know, stuff that was is not typically in the lexicon. Uh, but is something, but our but our data points that he feels are integral to his success, how he used them, uh, what's worth looking at, also what's not worth really following, what's misunderstood, and I guess the whole point of the book is you can get other books, but what we want to try to do at Martin Chronicle in our coaching and publishing is shorten the learning curve in such a way that you're learning from somebody who is, 
you know, his reputation, you don't have to join the webinar and listen to 20 minutes of who the person is, right? If you don't know who Tony Saliba is, okay, I get it. You're probably new and, and, and that's going to happen. But, you know, you're dealing with someone who's already a legend in, in many circles and what you're going to get is the wisdom and the context that only, you know, that comes with. Excellent. So would you say that this book is aimed at uh, experienced options traders or is there a broader universe of people that would find value uh, in, in reading this book? Right. So the bookseller in me wants to say, you know, go buy a copy for your dead grandmother. <laughs> but, but so if you're a new options trader, I think this material will be beyond you. That doesn't mean you can't grow into it, right? Because most of the stuff that I read when I was a kid was like, wow, I had to read Jack Schwager's Complete Guide on Futures like 10 times and, and the Futures game, you know, many, many times to really understand it. So I think the folks who can really pick this up are folks who are already trading options and, um, they, you know, they've managed risk in the option space before. There's an external benefit to it as well that it's just hitting me as we're sitting here. So I'm going to mark this down in that, you know, I can trade any security at this point. I didn't start out that way, but I can now because I was willing to lose. I was willing to pay tuition and figure out how did my losses feel and what did I learn from the experience, right? And I'll risk 25 basis points on anything, right? I mean, because then I get to be wrong 400 times and it's not, you know, so – what I learned from derivatives is it helped me understand the underlying securities a lot more, right? Because a derivative, as you know, puts and calls, their value is based on something else, volatility of the instrument and the underlying instrument itself. So I really – I got to understand how the underlying securities trade and how they behave by understanding the options. So I think the one takeaway could be – if you even if you don't understand options and you don't care to trade options, I get that. It's not they're not for everybody. But you will walk away with an understanding that it, it might put off some light bulbs in your system development, in your swing trading rules, in your, you know, trend following stuff, whatever it is that you're doing, even if you're in long short pairs, like there's a lot of insight on risk management, which, you know, is what options are really about. When you have ceilings and floors, you can really customize stuff and make your trades and bets, if you call them bets, in where something's going, but also where they're not going. I am an options trader, as, as you and I have discussed offline. And uh, I guess one of the things that I've that have always appealed to me about the options world that's a little bit unique to the options world is options, for lack of a better term, give you options. <laughs> yeah, There's lots of different ways to express a trade. I mean, there's lots of different ways to express a uh, a bullish uh, opinion or a bearish opinion or a sideways opinion. Uh, and just because a trade is losing now does not mean it can't be fixed uh, in ways to put you in a better position to come out ahead eventually. It's, it's, there's a lot of moving parts. Uh, it's, it's an ongoing puzzle. And I guess, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's fascinating for those reasons. Yeah. I mean, I think the way I bridged from trading outright futures to the option space was, I wanted to add risk to the portfolio, but given my position size and the capital base that I had at the time, I couldn't see adding more outright futures because don't forget, if, you, if for those of you who don't trade futures, 
understand that you have unlimited loss potential regardless of whether you're long or short, right? Right. So options, the one thing you can say about options if you're an options buyer is that you can define your max loss on the day you get filled, right? Settlements T plus one or whatever, but that you still know what your max loss is going to be. So for folks who might be fully loaded uh, in one particular area, but they see opportunities in another area that may be somewhat unfamiliar to them, but they also want to go through the emotional intelligence aspect of trading, options are an interesting way to do that because of the loss limiting built. You know, you have a built in stop, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And, you know, if you buy yourself enough time and don't buy these short dated things, you can do you can learn a lot. The book is coming out very shortly, right? It'll be available on Amazon uh, probably by the time we publish this podcast. Am I right? It'll be available for pre-order and then it'll be also available in bookstores. Fantastic. Yeah. So it's a good deal. The book is affordable. And what I'm doing at the launch is we've also, you know, we have a hardcover and a book like this after buying thousands of books. I know what books I want to buy on Kindle book and get an immediate download. And I also know what are the books that I want to have at my disposal and have in my bookshelf. And I think everyone who's into reading has their own tastes and preferences around that. And so what we thought we would do is if you, if you, if you think it's a good fit and you'd like to learn about options trading from, you know, the only options trader that was in market wizards, uh, for that matter, we're going to give you a free copy of the audiobook as well as the ebook. So it's enormous value there. Tony went in, we went into Chicago near Lincoln Park, for example, and we recorded the full on audiobook. We took out the calculus and the math and the charts, right? Because you can't narrate the charts, it doesn't exactly sound good. So we sure. cut that out, but we left the narrative and the wisdom and the insight. So Everyone who buys the book, the hardcover on the launch, will get about 60 or so dollars worth of value. We have the full, like I said, the full, there's 24 chapters, 450 pages. There's the full audio book. We'll send you the ebook version, regardless of your platform. And we also recorded 10. There's a couple of spots where things get kind of tricky because it can be advanced, right? So we recorded uh, 10 videos as well that go with the book in certain spots uh, very handsomely and we'll, we'll avail those to, you know, people who buy the hardcover as well. Well, it certainly sounds like uh, it should be a great read for people interested in the options market. And I also want to mention uh, your book that, that you've authored, the inner book of the inner voice of trading by Michael Martin. Uh, also, uh, I, I'm ashamed to admit that I have not read that book, but I promise you I will. <laughs> it's okay. I am very interested in that book. And it, 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 it's kind of surprising to me that it, uh, it hasn't come across my, my desk sooner, but it is a book that I'm, uh, I'm very interested in reading. So, uh, me as well as everybody listening, we need to go out and get this book and listen to Michael Martin. And, and, and Michael, this has been a fantastic chat. Uh, there's so much to learn from you. And, and uh, I feel 
I, I feel like we haven't even really scratched the surface. There's a lot more we could talk about, but in the interest of, uh, of, of, of not killing our listeners, we've already been going over an hour and a quarter here, so we should probably wrap it up. But hey, it was great meeting you in person for the first time uh, just a few weeks ago at Stocktoberfest. Uh, it was fantastic meeting you. I hope you had fun. I certainly did. I look forward to interacting more with you in the future, and, and I hope to uh, visit you sometime when I'm out in L.A. because it would be uh, it'd be cool to have a beer with you on a weekend, on a Saturday. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, good idea. <laughs> All right. Well, Michael, thanks for doing this, man. Uh, this this was fun. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm honored that you, uh, knowing who you've had, it's a great honor to have anyone interested in anything that I have to say. Never mind, want to invite me onto their podcast. So. I'm uh, I'm grateful for all my experiences. I learned a lot from failing and failing forward. And uh, that's likely the path that a lot of folks are taking in their trading. And uh, just keep stick stick with it. If your intentions intentions equal results and if it's something that you really, really want, just be true to yourself and follow that path because you'll get there. It might look very different from what you envisioned, but as you get more clarity, it will evolve and you'll notice that the universe is going to start to conspire with you and make things happen for you that, that will point you in the right direction. So at least it did for me. So thank you, Sean. Thanks for having me. Well, that's beautiful. Thanks, Mike. This has been the Must Follow Podcast hosted by Sean McLaughlin, a.k.a. Chicago Sean. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud. And please give us a review. Let us know what you thought. And let us know who you'd like to hear in the future. Thanks for listening.